This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I'm Tiziana Deering, in from Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Frances Haugen, what was your first job at Facebook? What did they hire you to do? Uh, many people probably have heard of the Facebook third-party fact-checking program. It's uh, where they hire journalists to go and fact-check extremely popular stories on Facebook. Most people aren't aware that that program only covers a very, very limited corner of Facebook. So it covers parts of America, like the most popular content in the United States, the most popular content in Western Europe. But for majority of countries in the world, there are no third-party fact-checkers. And even in uh, major countries like India, you might only have a couple hundred stories fact-checked every month. My team, I was recruited to Facebook to work on the problem of what do you do about misinformation when you can't rely on third-party fact-checking? How do you change the system or do other things beyond just taking down individual pieces of content? And when did you realize that you weren't going to be able to do that job? You couldn't succeed at the job for which you were hired. So I think the question you're trying to ask is like, why did I decide to blow the whistle? Uh, the the no, moment no, I realized... You know, no, I, I so, want to go back because mm-hmm. in the mm, memoir, okay. there is mm-hmm. a moment earlier on where you're like, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let's start there. Sure. Um, so I I realized probably within a couple of months that it was not going to be possible for me to accomplish that objective. Because at Facebook, nothing was contri- considered false unless it was third-party fact-checked. And so we lacked, uh, we lacked, uh, we, we were not well aligned with how Facebook operated or defined success. All right. So, and I appreciate you letting me re-steer you back. Sure. We are t- no worries. We are yeah. talking with Frances Haugen today because she has a new memoir out, The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. That's probably how you know her listening right now as the Facebook whistleblower. In 2021, she disclosed 22,000 pages of internal Facebook documents, revealing what she says are both failures and culpability at the social media giant around some profound social harms. Francis, now I'm going to say welcome. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. So I, I do want to get into that big question that mm-hmm. you posed, but I want to go back a little bit because, you know, there mm-hmm. is this story mm-hmm. of from engineer to whistleblower, and I want to go back to engineer. Um, mm-hmm. You spent your whole career up to the whistleblower moment in tech, all the way mm-hmm. back to Olin College of Engineering. What drew you into the tech mm-hmm. industry, Francis? I, I have always loved to build things. So I, I went to a, a Montessori preschool, and um, I remember I loved that they would even let you know small children, like three and four year olds, use real saws and real hammers 
and I built some very ugly boxes, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, and uh, my my father was always uh, very willing to do projects with me, so he really liked tinkering, and so he would let me tag along. And um, that really set the stage for my getting into college. And so I, I ended up only getting it. I, I, I was interested in a variety of subjects, but I only got into technical colleges. So you go to technical college and then you go into a number of prestigious companies in the tech mm-hmm. space before Facebook, you know, with brands like Google, Pinterest, Yelp. And I want us all to understand because I want us to know the expertise you bring into Facebook as you begin to evaluate what's going on there. What kind of things were you building with this passion mm-hmm. for building things? So I was incredibly lucky in that I uh, stumbled into Google, and I really, I really can't say I navigated to Google because I got one job out of college because back then, Olin College of Engineering wasn't accredited, um, and I, I had I, I detailed in the in the book like you know the the things you don't think about when you're an 18 year old applying to a new college is when you graduate you will not have an accredited degree immediately. Um, so I got one job because Google was willing to be flexible. And uh, I ended up in California, uh, right as kind of the, the the function at Facebook of product management. That's the process of of you know it's more of like the the user experience function around search quality, which is the process of like how do you pick out which websites to give someone what what which they look like when should you show them to them. Um, that function was just starting to be built out in two thousand six two thousand seven. And I fell in love with the fact that when you um, people are more honest with Google, with search engines, than often anyone in their their day to day lives. You know, you'll you'll ask questions where you're very vulnerable. You'll ask questions about your curiosities, and it was amazing getting to have this window into the kind of the sub you know the the subconscious of humanity. Um, and I loved being able to help people, right? Like I love that that in that moment when someone reached out and wanted help, we could help them. And that's how I really fell in love with building things. So how could you help them? What's something you hmm. did with the search engine when you hmm. were at Google sure. that made it, I don't know, better mm-hmm. for somebody in a vulnerable moment, mm. in an intimate moment, to find what they were looking for? So I think the the thing I'm, I'm most proud of that I did on on search was um, I, we, we, I, I, I figured out a different way to um, so when when you're trying to build a build a search page, you have to reach into something called an index, which is like um, think of it as your library. Mm-hmm. You have to walk into your library, and you only get to put a limited number of books on the shelves. And prior to this change, we were putting whole books on the shelves instead of individual pages. And let's be honest, every page of every book is not equally valuable. And I had figured out a clever clever uh, trick for looking at data and figuring out how do you pick out individual pages. And part of why that was like such a magical change for me was um, it let us bring in a greater diversity of content, a greater diversity of languages. And so we were able to serve users who might not get to use the richness of the English internet um, to get answers in in a very different way. So now when I think about your description of... Mm -hmm the job you were hired at Facebook to do, it starts to flesh out a little bit more. And I understand I'm skipping a lot, and some of it we'll touch mm-hmm. on further. But no worries. I want to fast forward now, Frances Haugen. Mm-hmm. In 2018, you get a call from Facebook. With, with that just ringing in our ears, why do you think 
Facebook wanted you? Hmm. Um, so I, I don't have any grand interpretations of why Facebook reached out. Uh, I was one of a handful of people who worked on algorithmic products, um, especially in product management. It's not super common, or at least it wasn't back then. And uh, they would email you, you know, four times a year, you know, just to see, are you now maybe interested in working at Facebook? And uh, I, uh, but the thing I did differently that time when they reached out was I kind of, I fully admit kind of flippantly said to them, you know, I, I would, I, the only thing I would do at Facebook is work on misinformation. Um, Cause I, you know, I didn't care what, I didn't care what they said. And I, I was totally, um, kind of pushed back when I when they were like, oh, we, we actually have a job around that. Like you could work on civic misinformation. And that's how uh, I began, you know, becoming open at least to the idea that maybe I would work at Facebook. And you had had a close friend, uh, mm-hmm. Jonah, who you mm-hmm. felt had been radicalized some uh, via misinformation in the 2016 election cycle. Well, he he uh, describes the experience that he had online as he was he was radicalized online. Um, I don't I can't blame Facebook specifically. Like I think it was probably more things like 4chan and, and Reddit. Um, but over the course of a very few months between when Bernie Sanders lost the nomination and the election in the fall, um, you know, he turned online to commiserate with people who, you know, felt that that Bernie had been wronged. And in the process of, you know, finding places where, where people were aggrieved, he ended up also um, kind of getting pulled down the rabbit hole and beginning to believe some pretty um, non-consensus reality beliefs, like uh, George Soros uh, runs the world economy, that kind of thing. And so you wanted to work on that. So I, I the, the pain of watching Jonah kind of pull back from our shared reality was in, was incredibly painful for me because um, I had I had gone quite ill in my late twenties um, to the point where I had to relearn to walk. So I spent seven weeks in the hospital. Um, I almost died. Uh, there was a period of time where I got a head injury and like I I had to I, I couldn't speak. Like imagine how verbal I am. I couldn't even form a sentence. Um, and uh, during the period of my recovery, and the the thing they they don't tell you about recovering from such such a, a health scare is that it takes a long time. You know, it's 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 lonely. It's boring. And uh, Jonah was was you know I want to I think we were both kind of lost. You know, he he was uh, in his early twenties. He had just moved to the Bay Area. Um, I initially hired him as like an assistant so I could clean out a storage unit. You know, I was too weak to carry the boxes back and forth to like the storage unit or like take trash out. Um, but we became really good friends. And when I watched him slip away, it 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 felt like it felt like I was my my friend was dying, yeah. right? And and when that Facebook recruiter uh, reached out, you know, I think if I hadn't had that experience of this this person who I credit my recovery to, you know, I I credit the fact I have the life I have today to. If I hadn't lost him to misinformation, I don't think I would have given that recruiter the time of day. So we go forward, uh, and we're going to have to take a break in a minute, but we go forward to June 2019. There you are. Very quickly, somebody who's supposed to mentor you says, I don't understand why your team exists, and I don't think it should exist. Um, What do you do in that moment when you've come to take on something that's so Mm -hmm. deeply important to you? 
So for context for, for most of your listeners, um, you know, in, in any any standard job, you know, if you're you're if you're hired to solve a problem, they still expect you to take a couple months to learn how the company operates. So Francis, I'm just gonna run interrupt you oh, and sure. tell you we have to go to break sure. in about thirty seconds. Oh, okay. So just heads up. Um sure. Um I the I so the person who was uh sent to mentor me, he he was asking me, What are your projects? And because uh by definition Civic misinformation was misinformation beyond what was dealt with by third-party fact-checking. There was no way for us to measure uh, that we actually were taking down the thing that we were assigned to. And so he said, "You shouldn't. You shouldn't work in this space." And that's a pretty interesting setup to what comes next. All right. So this is on point. I'm Tiziana Deering. We're talking about social media, why the companies that create them can't make them safer, and why Francis Haugen blew the whistle on Facebook. Francis, stay with me, the author of The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. That last phrase, that's what we come to next. Why Francis Haugen blew the whistle on Facebook. We'll be back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering, and we're talking with Frances Haugen. She is the author of The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth, and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. And by the way, we have an excerpt of The Power of One on our website, onpointradio.org. So, Frances, you're now there. You've been told it's going to be too hard to measure what you're trying to do in civic misinformation. Um, uh, Your team probably shouldn't exist. You should be doing something else. It's a problem that's deeply important to you. Um, but there are these three dimensions that you discover of what's wrong. And, and I want to see if I can really, really simplify these. Basically, over time, despite the fact that you can't measure how you're trying to work against them, you discover inside the organization there are these problems. People can be harmed by working using Facebook. People can be driven towards harmful thinking, and it can be easy for bad people to do harmful things. Is it fair that over time, while you're trying to combat misinformation, you discover this about the company you're working in? So I, I worked within a relatively narrow scope. So my my focus was less on, so when you talk about bad people doing harmful things, unquestionably, there are many problems on Facebook like human trafficking, 
uh, acts by cartels to intimidate local populations or recruit members. There's a lot of stuff that is at that level. The scope of what I worked on was was initially, you know, what what causes uh, what can be done when there is uh, an explosion in Sri Lanka and uh, misinformation is threatening Muslims with ethnic violence? Like what what how can you uh, uh, you know turn down the the heat when the fire starts raging? Um, or or for example, what what I did next? What can you do if the police are being targeted with misinformation specifically in the United States? Um, so I, I, I would say I, I didn't get to cover the full continuum of, of what you what you described. No, no. And I, I didn't mean to imply that you worked on all of that. But I did want to understand, am I summarizing correctly that over time, as you discovered problems at Facebook, it was across all three of those areas? Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's fair. Okay. So let's pull those things out. You just gave two examples there, two of the things that you worked at. One, what can be done when there's an explosion, uh, you know, and and now people face harm. One of the things that was really striking was your discussion, your discovery about Facebook, excuse me, and its role in um, genocide in Myanmar. And I'm going to play some troubling sound here. I do want to note for listeners, this is hard to listen to. Um, the NGO Human Rights Watch released a video in 2017 describing the systematic rape and killings of the Rohingya minority in Myanmar. We have been investigating the particularly brutal massacre in the village of Tulartoli. We're literally talking about several hundreds of men, women and children who were killed. I don't have any of my brothers and sisters left, says one woman. Another woman says they snatched the toddlers from their mother's laps and threw them into the river. A few of the children were set on fire and a few were chopped to pieces. This is hard stuff, Francis Haugen. You were made aware early on of a sense that um, Facebook's uh, offering of free basic in the country, its lack of providing sufficient safety oversight there, may have contributed to what you say in the book is facilitating the deaths of 25,000 people and the displacement of 700,000 others. And, so, and so, it was work like that that you then were working towards mitigating going forward, yes? Hmm. So it's not my opinion that Facebook uh, played an active role in that genocide. The UN released a 250-page report in, uh, I believe, 2018 or 2019 that very clearly said Facebook is at fault because of negligence. Like they didn't have anyone, they had one person in the company that spoke Burmese. And when that person said, hey, you have a problem, your platform's being weaponized by people trained in Russia, like the New York Times did a great great deal of reporting on that, uh, is being weaponized and used to kill people. There was no mechanism for that information to move up the reporting chain at Facebook. So the experience I had regarding Myanmar was one of the things Facebook agreed to as a result of that report was they would provide a channel for people like Human Rights Watch to flag when things were going off the rails. You know, they, they made a, a, a trusted inbox so that, you know, people could safely message a specialist, get a 24-hour turnaround. You know, they, 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 they said, we're going to do it different this time. And one of the first projects I worked on at Facebook was, okay, let's, let's upgrade that service. And what we discovered was uh, Facebook had promised to build the inbox 
but they had never promised to maintain it. And so that, that mechanism for contacting Facebook was so out of date that we were going to be required to invest six months of work just to bring it into compliance with how the rest of Facebook functioned. And that was like my first shocking wake-up call to like how Facebook allocated resources. Can, can I ask you, and, and I almost said this out loud to you while I was reading the book, why mm. not quit right then, Francis? Mm. Why is that not the moment where you say, I can't be here? So one of the things I write about in the book is this idea that all Facebook employees who work on safety um, face kind of a, a, a quite a an arduous dilemma, which is, you know, once you learn a truth like that, you know, it's totally true. It's it's a reasonable thing to say this is too much. I'm going to quit. Uh, maybe you write a memo, hope that someone else deal, deals with it at some point. Another option is that you stay and you keep you keep trying, even though you know you don't have enough resources, because you know at least you have one person who's trying to make it a little bit better, even if it might not be enough. But one of the things I saw over and over again was my coworkers really dearly burning out um, as a result of that kind of thinking. And I did not have the arrogance to believe that I could be a, a, a one-woman solution to problems of that magnitude. Like the conclusion I came to was a third way which was the public needed to come help save Facebook from itself. So as you are there, you get there in, in 2019, um, the, the decision and the documents were forward in 2021. During that time, you've just laid out one of the projects that you work on that underscores a problem. Let's talk about a couple of the other key problems that you found. One of the things that was striking to me was this idea that Facebook was constantly making choices that you felt the company internally was framing as, we don't have the resources, mm. but that you felt the company was actually saying, we're choosing not to allocate the resources. And that that was not only having a significantly harmful effect in the world, but grinding down people on the inside as well. The, I, you know, I, I, I love people to take a step back and think about Facebook's profit margins. So, you know, most businesses have very moderate profit margins. We're talking five, seven, maybe 10, 12% if they're really lucky. Facebook's profit margins are north of 20%, north of 25% most of the time. Um, Facebook could have spent small amounts more money, we're talking millions of dollars more per year when you have tens of billions of dollars in revenue per year, to make sure you did have enough people working on things like genocide. And so Facebook, I, I heard over and over again from people, you know, it's just so hard to hire. There's no way we can hire. And it's like when you have tens of billions of dollars in extra money laying over at the end of the quarter, if you can't hire people to work on genocide, it means you're choosing not to, not that you can't. So I want to know, we reached out to what is now Meta, uh, of course. Um, we're using Facebook because that's what it was at the time you were there. And to keep it simple, we did reach out to them. We did not hear back from them in time for this broadcast. I'll pull up a little bit of comment from Mark Zuckerberg in a blog mm -hmm. that he posted um, after your Senate testimony on mm -hmm. October 5th, 2021. And, and it, it's a longer blog. I'm going to bring up a little mm -hmm. bit of it here. It feels like the right point to bring in his voice. 
At the most basic level, I think most of us just don't recognize the false picture of the company that is being painted. Many of the claims don't make any sense. If we wanted to ignore research, why would we create an industry-leading research program to understand these important issues in the first place? If we didn't care about fighting harmful content, then why would we employ so many people dedicated to this than any other company in our space, even ones larger than us? That's a pushback to the idea that there Mm -hmm. was insufficient investment, Francis. So they have the largest social network in the world by a huge margin. So even at Twitter's height, you know, Facebook had probably uh, five, six times as many users. So Facebook has 3.1 million users around the world. And Twitter maybe had 400,000, 500,000. Um, also, what's quite ironic about that whole blog post now is Facebook has fired a huge fraction of all those researchers today, right? In the, quote, year of efficiency they have radically reduced the size of their trust and safety team. Um, and so it is It is interesting that that was the way he framed it at the time of the event. And now that, uh, to quote Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk has showed you can rip off the Band-Aid, i.e. fire a lot of people. Um, now uh, You're referring they, to they, him they, buying Twitter, which is now X. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm referring to him um, letting 70, like the Twitter has 25% as many employees as when it, he bought it. Like Musk straight up fired half of the company and there were no consequences. You know, we live in a world where there is no transparency for the social costs of these platforms. And so you can you can borrow or steal from the social side of the balance sheet and make your economic side of the balance sheet look more more plump. So I want to pick up on another thread here, and we're speaking with Francis Haugen, um, the author of The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. And we're constructing here what you were discovering there that leads you to then reveal 22,000 pages of internal documents. You've laid out the lack of attention and resources paid to safety for violent areas, et cetera. Um, You know, we've talked about why you didn't quit during that process. Earlier, I asked you kind of the skills that you brought in. You, You made reference to algorithms. And one of the things that you unfold in the book is uh, a change that Facebook made to the way, and I'm going to use a, a lay mm-hmm. term here, right? Mm-hmm. The way Facebook Facebook pushes content around 2018 that you really felt was a pretty profound change. Do you think there's a simple way that you could explain to us what that was? Mm-hmm. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg actually, quote, wrote a white paper probably one of his employees did, but his name's on it, from 2018, that says, when we prioritize content, you know, we, every time you open your phone, Facebook looks at a hundred thousand or more pieces of content and says, what should we show you now? What should we show you first? What should we show you second? When you make that process decision, when you decide, okay, I'm going to show you this first, based on the likelihood that you're going to click on it, that you're going to reshare it, that you're going to put a comment on it, you end up biasing, you end up giving the most distribution to the most extreme content. Um, and I mean, he lays it out himself in that white paper. Um, I, in 2018, they adopted that method of prioritizing content. Before that, they, they said content is good if you hang out on Facebook longer. You know, it, it was based on your total time spent on site. 
Does the rest of the tech industry get a complete pass on that? And, and here's what I mean. Mm, not my, great not my field, right? The, yeah. the algorithmic development that's happening everywhere else, in Google, mm-hmm. right, other mm-hmm. companies, mm-hmm. in the decade before that, does any of that make it possible for Facebook mm. to do what it does at that time that leads to what you believe uh, and have asserted? And, and we'll come to some research a little bit later in the show um, to have been, you know, such a harmful change? Um, sorry, uh, can you repeat the, the core part of the question again? It was a long question. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. Work in the tech industry up oh, to that anyone point. else, anyone yeah, else. Yeah, anyone else um, culpable. So, so um, I think one way to think about it is um, most other tech companies have um, more of a recognition that they have, they have power. Right. Facebook's um, a big part of what I lay out in the book. And for those who are listening who feel like this is a really intense conversation, trust me, the book is full of fun, playful stories. And it is a policy book for people who don't like policy books. Um, the uh, other companies like TikTok, you know, TikTok is a product that is driven by algorithms even more than Facebook is. But TikTok was also designed with the idea that, that co- choices about content, choices about allowing children on the platform or not. Are serious choices, you know that that TikTok holds power, and the the danger with Facebook was that they developed a management system that devalued human judgment, that said as long as the metrics go up, it's a good thing, ignoring the fact that all metrics based systems can only capture a, a sliver of the issues that matter in any given system. There is a moment where you talk about um, preparing for the 2020 election, and the organization identifies 60 sort of, I think you called it deep blood red colored hotspot potential problems, and decides it can tackle maybe 10 of them. Um, And that, again, is an allocation choice that you feel Mm -hmm. the company made. That's the kind of thing you want us to understand about these choices, yes? For, for context, because the, the deep red blood thing might not make a ton of sense, uh, imagine you went through and made a chart describing where the vulnerabilities might lie on Facebook. You know, it could lie on Facebook, it could be on Instagram, it could involve groups, it could involve hashtags, it could involve messaging. Imagine you went and made a chart and there were 60 boxes on it and 50, and, and 50 of those boxes were red. You know, only a few were yellow, none were green. I... I but you only have enough resources to pick 10 boxes out of those 50 that are you actually, quote, have enough staff to, ta- to tackle. So that's a great example of where Facebook could have taken some people off of ads targeting for a couple months. They could have, uh, you know, not done another animated emoji for a couple months. Uh, those are choices. They had the ability to. They chose not to. So in a minute, we're going to have to go to another break. And when we come back, I want to get into the choices that you think we need to make as a country and that social Mm -hmm. media need to make going forward. Um, You then at the beginning of 2021 make a choice to blow the whistle Um, as we go out in, in just two sentences. Was it the hardest decision you've ever made? Oh, great choice. A great question. Um, yeah, I would say I would say almost certainly the idea of should I bring information to the public was one of the hardest choices I had ever made. 
Francis Haugen is author of The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Faith's Book. It is her new memoir full of that story and much of her life. We're talking with her about it here on Point. When we come back, let's start looking forward. Um, what do we do now? What's coming next? What does Francis think might solve some of these problems? What different choices can and should we all make? Again, I'm Tiziana Deering. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. My guest is Frances Haugen, the so-called Facebook whistleblower. She's out with a new book called The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. And we're talking about the real challenges that human beings are facing from social media now and maybe looking forward a little to artificial intelligence. But, uh, Mm -hmm. Frances, I want to talk about sunshine for a minute, Mm. both Mm -hmm. literally and metaphorically, because so now we move forward, 2021, you have made the decision and you have executed on it to uh, get these 22,000 pages. You work with the Wall Street Journal. You give an interview on 60 Minutes. You testify before the Senate. You have moved to Puerto Rico, which is better for your physical health. You don't work at Facebook anymore. The sun is shining on you, and you have shed sunlight on something that you think is so important. Talk about, for just a minute, this moment in your life. Mm. You know, it was it was so interesting. Like, uh, before, um, so I, I had not really ever considered being a public person. Um, so one of the things I talk about a great deal in the book is is the idea that, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, being the center of attention is not a thing that I am super comfortable with. Like I, I tried really hard to have a wedding the second time I got married and I eloped again, you know, like it's, it's one of those things. <laughs> um, and, um, though I did get to elope on a beach in Puerto Rico, so it was still lovely. Um, the, uh, but, uh, at that point, so I've, I've come out, I've come home, right? Um, the thing that I was really struck by was, you know, you, you have these visions in your mind that you, you blow the whistle on a big company and there's going to be paparazzi or maybe someone on the Internet will get strange ideas about you and come yell at you or, you know, who knows, uh, private investigators. And I was so grateful that none of that happened. Right. And I, I sometimes say that uh, Puerto Rico protected me because, you know, if you want to come yell at me, you have to get on a plane and get a hotel for at least one night. 
And just that activation energy keeps, you know, some people on the internet away. Um, or like, I feel like the world really received my, my critique in a, in a positive and welcoming way. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. So I want to come forward now, and it was surprising mm -hmm. to read that the retribution you were worried might happen didn't come. And that struck me next to the retribution that it seemed like might happen for Facebook for those who fully leaned into, you know, the what was coming out in these stories. And I, and I wonder if it has come. I'm going to play a little sound from a, a congressional mm -hmm. hearing in October of 2021. S Senator Richard Blumenthal, chair of the Subcommittee on Consumer Protection. Um, he is grilling Meta's global head of safety, Antigone Davis. Facebook has taken Big Tobacco's playbook. It has hidden its own research on addiction and the toxic effects of its products. It has attempted to deceive the public and us in Congress about what it knows. And it has weaponized childhood vulnerabilities against children themselves. I'm noting that big tobacco playbook because just recently you gave an interview where you said you were still waiting for social media to have its cigarette moment. And I'm assuming you mean when the world sort of turned against big tobacco. Well, actually, we've, we've begun in many ways the big tobacco moment because um, just maybe, I guess, two months ago now, uh, the Surgeon General came out and did a, a national health advisory on how uh, teenage mental health was in danger because of social media. Um, everything from sleep deprivation, you know, 30% of kids say they're on screens till midnight or later, which means 10% are probably on till two, uh, till two. um, uh, escalating rates of depression, things like that. Average kid spends three and a half hours a day on social media. Um, I, with the, just for context for your listeners, there've only been maybe 10 or 15 of these advisories since the sixties. Um, and historically, within two to three years after one of these advisories comes through, we usually see some major law or something like the attorney generals, that's what happened with, with uh, Big Tobacco, bringing a lawsuit that acts like a national law. And so I, I think our Big Tobacco moment is, is just beginning. It's not that it hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. Do you have faith that our Congress is capable of passing the laws um, uh, in this moment that would provide, you know, sufficient regulation? I, I you know, I, I'm noting two mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. One is uh, a move yesterday, for example, by an unlikely pair with Orrin Hatch, uh, not Orrin Hatch, excuse me, Lindsey Graham and Senator Elizabeth Warren saying they want a new federal Bureau, basically, a new federal department that's going to provide oversight to big tech companies. A move like that, A, good idea. B, do you think something like that can happen now? So just for, again, to remind your listeners, for big tobacco, it never happened at the federal level. It happened from the attorney generals. And we're starting to see very large lawsuits like uh, the Seattle Public Schools bringing a lawsuit on, on the costs of mental health, dealing with the mental health impacts of social media and teenagers. In the case of a national department, I haven't had a chance yet to analyze what exactly their request is asking. I'm a huge proponent of transparency. And in the book, I walk through why we need even minimal transparency if we want to be able to really rein in these companies. Um, but I get a little nervous sometimes when we start talking about specific actions 
because I, you know, we're living in a, an in-between time, I would say, where every social issue has a finite number of children who are willing to accept being harmed. When it comes to cars, we put eight-year-olds in car seats. Like, think about that for a second. Think about how annoying it is to have an eight-year-old fight with you about the car seat every day. It saves like 60 kids a year, right? Not a, not a big mover, but we don't accept those deaths. A lot more than 60 kids a year are dying from, from social media. And it, when we look at places like Utah or Montana, you know, places that are conservative, they're starting to pass really extreme laws. Things like in Utah, getting rid of youth privacy online. Um, Montana, they banned TikTok. Um, I hope that if we have an oversight organization, it's something like what the European Union passed last year, which is they came out and said, we have the right to have tech companies disclose the risks of their products. We have the right to ask questions and get real answers. And we have the right to be able to research independently what these platforms are doing. So we don't just accept what they tell us as truth. You know, I want to bring up something that's sort of come forward in the last 24 hours, because mm-hmm. one of the things we talked about earlier in our conversation and, and that you've talked about, in addition to the transparency, is this sort of, again, my layperson's term, algorithmic focus and approach that Facebook has used. Um, Facebook uh, uh, engaged in some research, made uh, some data available to 17 researchers, 12 universities, um, and uh, Science released a package yesterday, the first of some articles that are coming out. Um, Facebook also released uh, a statement. There's some, okay, let me do a better job at this. (laughs) The first of it comes out yesterday. Facebook frames it as the research is going to show that our algorithms didn't cause problem. Uh, Mm -hmm. Science says, uh, quote, significant ideological segregation, uh, end quote, comes from the platform. But also, according to an NBC News article, quote, it was not clear whether this segregation was caused more by algorithms or user choice, end quote. Well, if it's not clear, then is Facebook the problem? Or, as Mm -hmm. some of the researchers involved say, over time will we see it's more complicated than that and the algorithms will be a piece of this puzzle. So one of the things that's fascinating about this research project um, is that they had an independent, what's known as reporteur, um, which is basically a journalist who rides along and goes to the meetings and figures out, is this actually independent research? You know, is, is, is this a thing where, like, Facebook has genuinely not interfered? Um, and one of the things that came out of that analysis was, you know, these are very limited experiments. You know, you had a situation where um, uh, the journalists, and journalists, the, the academics made some reasonable guesses on experiments to run. But remember, they're playing uphill ball with a bunch of Facebook employees who have all the data. They have all the prior research. And the experiment that that Facebook points at is saying, oh, this proves that our algorithms didn't do anything. You know, you can't design a whole product with the assumption that an algorithm will be there and then remove the algorithm and say, oh, this is, this is the impact of the algorithm. So I'll make that a little clearer. When you and I joined Facebook or when Facebook got its first feed, you did not belong to any million person groups, you know, a group, a Facebook group with a million members or 100,000 members. Because if you had had that group, your feed would have been flooded with content from just one group. 
you know, a million people might make a thousand posts a day. Facebook's experiment said, we're going to turn off the algorithm, but leave you in those million person groups. Is it surprising that they didn't see any change in results or behavior just when they turned the algorithm off? And Science Magazine uh, warned Facebook a week in advance and said, if you, if you come out and say, this proves we're fine, if this, you say, this exonerates us, we will openly challenge you. Because the research does not say Facebook didn't do anything. It says the specific experiment that was run showed little effect. So that is then, of course, exactly what's been unfolding this week. Mm-hmm. So as we move forward, I want to move us forward a little bit mm-hmm. more, because one of the things that has been, I think, heavily on my mind in reading the book were your references to AI. So, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at the top of every chapter, you have a quote. Uh, from someone else. And one of those quotes is, dumb AI is basically more dangerous than strong AI. And Mm -hmm. in an interview with Wired in June of this year, you referred to us as backing away from what you call, quote, the AI hype ledge, end quote. I was really intrigued by that because there is so much conversation right now about the fact that we are underappreciating the level of danger a very strong AI. So one, with where AI is now, and it's not where it was when you wrote the book, is it still better to have a, a strong AI than dumb AI? Uh, well, what I mean by dumb AI is, is you know, the people who are telling you about how the world's going to end are talking about problems that are almost certainly at least 20, if not 30, or many, many, many further years away. But in that time, just the current version of AI we have, not even the version of AI we had when I wrote the book, is powerful enough to really destroy society. Or I'll give you, I'll really give you a really concrete example. I'm at a conference right now in Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, uh, United Kingdom, so not Massachusetts, Cambridge, <laughs> and uh, the uh, there was a Facebook representative here, and she talked about how AI was important because it can do content moderation. And I got up and I asked a very simple question. I said, we have had an academic field called adversarial AI. So adversarial AI is kind of what it sounds like. It's about tricking AI. It's like, how can I fool AI? And it's, it's really interesting. You can, you can create images that look like penguins, not penguins, like pandas. And you can add a little bit of noise to that image that was designed to trick the AI. And it'll make the AI think it's a monkey. Um, we're about to enter a very different world where part of the Digital Services Act is it says you have the right to know your content was taken down. You have the right to know if Facebook demotes you. When we have that information and we're writing an AI that's trying to trick Facebook's content moderation systems, we now can tune every little piece of misinformation to be you know, just slightly different enough that it gets through the filters. So we're about to live in an era where content moderation will not work anymore. We don't need, you know, suicidal, homicidal AI to ruin the world. We need uh, chaos monkeys that are are are, su- are sowing information operation campaigns that are making us distru- distrust ourselves and our neighbors. So I want to understand that better. I, that mm-hmm. is why I was surprised to see you refer to something like an AI hype ledge, which feels like you're being dismissive. 
That doesn't sound like something to dismiss. But am, am I misunderstanding you there? Sure. So when a lot of the people who are are painting doomsday scenarios, their doomsday scenarios are are not that. You know, that's a problem that's now. That's a this week, this month problem. That's a we need to fix social media immediately. And there's ways to do it. You know, we can design we can design around safety by behavior, not by content. But the people who are going on TV and saying that this is an existential risk are talking about AIs designing viruses and AIs launching nuclear weapons. That is the hype machine. We need to be fixing social media right now because we don't need infinitely smart AI to do dangerous things. We need even just AI of today. And that AI has escaped. Facebook made its model open source. China released an even bigger model. The UAE launched an even bigger model. You know, the AI is out there. That means we have to fix social media today. So with that ringing in our ears and 60 seconds left to go, I do, at least for myself, need to ask you, Mm -hmm. what's Mm -hmm. one thing that's giving you hope? Oh, we have lots and lots of solutions. Like part of why I brought so much forward in the Facebook files was Facebook knows how to design these systems to be safer. You know, social media that's about your friends and family, that's human scale, can be safe by design. And we need to insist today on transparency so there's incentives to build social media that makes us happy, that's good for us and our communities. And you believe we can do that with the will we collectively share now? We need to stand up and demand transparency because we can do it today. We just have to have, we have to have the right incentives in place. And for you, what's next, Frances Haugen? Uh, I'm founding a nonprofit called Beyond the Screen. And we're focusing on ways to empower uh, investors, litigators, concerned citizens um, to be able to stand up and demand more from social media. Okay, Frances Haugen is former head of Facebook's civic misinformation team and author of The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. And we have an excerpt from the book on our website at onpointradio.org. Frances, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Tiziana Deering. Thanks for joining us. This is On Point.